Every other year, ISPU holds our Young Scholar Awards competition to highlight and uplift the work of early career researchers whose work focuses on topics related to Muslims in the United States. This year, after months of discussion and deliberation, we named our first, second, and third place winners. On today's episode of Deep Dives with ISPU, you'll hear a conversation between ISPU Director of Research Dalia Mugahed and our 2021 Young Scholar Award first place winner, Dr. Sama Chowdhury. Dr. Chowdhury's topic, What Makes Humor Muslim, explores how Islam is performed through stand-up comedy. Let's dive into the conversation between Dahlia and Dr. Chowdhury. Welcome back to the Institute for Social Policy and Understandings podcast. I'm Dahlia Mogahid, ISPU's Director of Research, and on today's episode, I'm pleased to introduce to you all Dr. Samah Chaudhry, Assistant Professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Ethica College, and the first place winner of the 2021 Young Scholar, Young Scholar Awards competition. The research topic she submitted was titled, What Makes Humor Muslim? and discusses how Islam is performed and articulated through the discourse of stand-up comedy. Currently, she's writing a book on the subject and on the ways that Islam gains recognition or becomes obscured under the specter and demands of U.S. secularity. Dr. Chaudhry, welcome. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this topic. What draws you to studying humor and stand-up? Yeah, so there's a few things, not, not you know, least of all, which is the fact that, like so many folks, I love watching stand-up comedy. Who doesn't love laughing until your stomach hurts? But what was curious here was the fact that suddenly, in the span of a few years, three South Asian Muslim men were, if not household names, at least had a prominent and very seemingly enduring presence um, in the comedy world, but also across U.S. pop culture. And again, as a consumer and a fan of this work, I knew they weren't the first Muslim comedians performing in the U.S. by a long shot. Many of us remember in the months and years after 9-11, there were several kind of marauding Muslim comedy acts and comedy collectives, folks like Azhar Osman and Dean Obidala and Preacher Moss, Moamir Mazdrabrani, the Axes of Evil comedy tour. And these men, and they were by and large men, save some women like Mason Zayed and Zahra Nurbakish, but these men were touring across the U.S. and across the world. They were getting write-ups in the New York Times and the Post. John Stossel interviews them. There's a PBC, uh, PBS documentary about them. I realize that I'm talking about them as if they're all dead, and don't worry, they're all fine. They're all still performing. But my point is, is that this was still niche comedy. American Muslims might have been familiar with them, but the family living across the street from me probably wasn't. And that changes with comedians like Aziz Ansari, Hassan Minhaj, and Kumail Nanjiani, who start working their way up the ladder, but it's a fast ascent. They get endorsed and fast-tracked by multimedia companies like Amazon, Netflix, Disney, Apple, all kind of beginning around 2015, give or take. 
So Hassan Minhaj, for example, is brought on as a correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He's one of the last hires that Stewart makes while he's still captaining the show. This ends up being the final arc of his stand-up special, Homecoming King, which premieres on Netflix in 2017. Rave reviews. The venture with Netflix actually proves to be a very enduring one. Within months, Netflix offers him a 32-episode order for a comedy show that he would be at the helm of. And so... Trade Act with Hassan Minhaj premieres in 2017, late 2017. It runs for six seasons, earns an Emmy Award, two Webby Awards, another Peabody for Minhaj. Kumail Nanjiani uh, premieres his first stand-up special in 2013 on Comedy Central. This springboards him into the cast of the HBO series Silicon Valley that debuted in 2014. It runs for about six seasons until the end of 2019. And then he and his wife, Emily Gordon, pen a screenplay about the story of their courtship. This catches the attention of Hollywood director Judd Apatow, who agrees to produce it as a full-length feature film titled The Big Sick. And it premieres at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival, is snapped up by Amazon Studios for distribution in one of the biggest deals in the history of the festival uh, to the tune of $12 million dollars. And then along the way, it collects several nominations on the awards circuit in 2017, including an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay for Nanjiani and Gordon. And then we have Aziz Ansari, who was on a show called Parks and Recreation. Um, He's on this show um, as the character Tom Haverford, who's this, you know, slick um, entrepreneurial government employee. And from there, he ends up on Netflix, under whose auspices he creates and stars in another very popular series called Master of None. This premieres in 2015, also gets rave reviews. The New York Times calls it, quote, the year's best comedy straight out of the gate, unquote. Uh, It has a successful second season that wraps in 2017. Again, does very well in the awards circuit, wins a Peabody, two Emmys, a Golden Globe for Ansari, which was widely covered in the press as the first Asian American to do so. And then we get what makes him perhaps actually the most household household name out of all of them, which is that he um, is named under the Me Too movement as a culprit. This time he sparks a wide-ranging discussion around whether or not he had committed assault against this young woman or had just been on a bad date. And so all of this caught my eye. Why them? Why this moment? Why around the same time that a certain reality TV show star is gaining his own brand of popularity by talking openly about Muslim bans and Muslim registries, how the southern border needs a wall, because guess what? You wouldn't believe it, but I heard there were people with prayer rugs coming across the border too. There was a relationship here between these things, I could sense it. And it was so much bigger than just a curiosity about which comedians were suddenly popular on Netflix or were winning Peabody Awards. It was bigger and more precise than the fact that the representation matters movement had taken off in pop culture. I think this sense that this was a political, historical, cultural moment that I wanted to understand as not being incidental or even responsive to our broader politics, but was actually in direct constitutive relationship to our politics 
is what brought me to this project. By centering Muslims and humor in the middle of this, we don't just get a better sense of how Muslims take part in pop culture or, you know, are part of the American social fabric. Sure. What is driving my research is how we are able to then get a sense of how secularism, our ideas of civic responsibility and civic principles of diversity and representation of our categories of religion and race writ large, all of these are regimes of social power that determine access and legibility. And we get a new angle to think about all of this when we center humor. I love uh, how you explained why these were the comedians you chose. Makes perfect sense. They're the most prominent. I just love to hear more about why you think they are the most popular. You, you seek to identify the whys of their popularity. Can you share what you found? Yeah, and I think there's a few things here. I'll start by saying that these men, first and foremost, are good at their jobs. They're strong writers and performers. Their timing, their pacing, the narrative arcs that they're constructing, all of it is a testament to the fact that they're talented at what they do. But I think there's more going on here than a, um, a strict meritocracy of wit here. I don't think it's a surprise that these that the three most popular Muslim, Muslim comedians of the last few years are all men and that they're all South Asian and that the version of Islam that gets performed and authenticated on stage by them is often done in a very interchangeable way with how they talk about race and ethnicity. I think their comedy and the articulation of Islam in that comedy is one that the American imaginary thirsts for. In the logic that they're setting out, Islam is highly private. It's made a matter of internal belief. It doesn't intrude on public life. It operates more or less like race in that the only time it does have public political implications is when these men are being subject to anti-Muslim hostility and Islamophobia. So they can make fun of the racists. They can ridicule the, the kind of, you know, lumbering banality that comes with screams of go back to where you came from, right? But by doing so, they're also reifying Islam in what are, frankly, very Protestant Christian terms. And so in this way, our dominant understandings of diversity and pluralism are actually quite confined more confined in the ways that we might otherwise assume. Islam appears to only be legible and embraceable when it has been made to fit the expectations and the regulations of this kind of secularizing order. That's really interesting. And I, I mean, it's worth mentioning that um, Hassan um, Minaj does identify as a practicing Muslim, Aziz Ansari, of course, identifies as an atheist, so not, not a Muslim at all, but yet um, still is able to touch on his racial and ethnic identities to, to touch on some of these issues around being um, having Muslim background. And I love what you said about what does this actually say about our society and what it means for the mainstream to be acceptable. What does diversity look like in, in a way that the mainstream culture is willing to accept? Speaking of humor, I've heard some advice for writing stand-up comedy, and it was not to write about what topics make you laugh, but to write about what topics 
make you frustrated or upset. How do you see this reflected in the work of comedians you research? I think that's exactly what's happening with these three comedians. Another comedian, Hannah Gatsby, she has a comedy special called Minette, and she has this great line in there where she says that artists don't, uh, don't create the zeitgeist, they respond to it. And these men are responding to decades of entrenched Islamophobia, Islamophobia that um, has been institutionalized in a lot of ways, too. In a lot of ways, they are products of their moment. But what I see, as I mentioned before, is a very tepid desire to embrace the M-word, we can call it, right? Muslim, Muslimness. And these three men do so in different ways. You mentioned Hassan Minhaj has really kind of platformed his Muslimness front and center in a lot of his comedy. People like Aziz Ansari and Kumail Nanjiani do so much later in their comedy careers. In fact, Aziz Ansari only calls himself Muslim, refers to his Muslim background for the first time in a New York Times op-ed that he publishes in 2016, early 2016, in response to uh, Donald Trump's very kind of loud war drums during the campaign season. This desire to affiliate with Islam seems to only happen when Islam operates as race, when it's in response to Islamophobia, being subject to racism in that way. And because of that, I think they're willing to talk about their personal experiences of things like Islamophobia and the anti-Muslim hostility they experience, their family members experience. But before that, it takes the form of just anecdotal passing instances as opposed to something political and of the moment. You know, I find it so interesting that in many ways their popularity is the product of Islamophobia, that the only kind of Muslim that's widely acceptable is one that sets their Islamic identity to the background or erases it completely in some cases. And yet Islamophobia is is what they make fun of in many ways. And, uh, and in some cases help, you know, makes them being, bring to the forefront their Islamic identity or their Muslim identity. So it's, it's fascinating to me to, to understand more about your research and, and really what it says about American society and the price of inclusion um, in some ways. So how are you planning on taking this research further? What do you hope to do next in this academic path. Well, Dahlia, you mentioned earlier um, in the interview that I'm working on a book. And so that's really where I'm seeing all of the things that we've discussed here today kind of coming together. So I'm putting that all together in a proposal as we speak. And um, I'm hoping you'll be able to read something uh, as a hard copy in in a few years soon. Well, I, I very much look forward to that. Thank you so much, Dr. Samah. This has been so interesting. Thank you for your time. Sending a big thank you to Dahlia and Dr. Chowdhury for your insights on this research. To learn more about Dr. Chowdhury's work, visit her website at S-A-M-A-H-C-H-O-U-D-H-U-R-Y.com. That's samachowdhury.com. For more information about ISVU's Young Scholar Awards and this year's winners, as well as 
2019, and 2017, visit ispu.org backslash young-scholar-award. And stay tuned for conversations with our second and third place award winners in coming weeks. If you enjoyed this episode of Deep Dives with ISPU and would like to hear more discussions like this, subscribe where podcasts are found and leave us a review. You can learn more about the Institute for Social Policy and Understandings Research at ISPU.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the ISPU and on Instagram at the underscore ISPU. Thanks for tuning in.